From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. This time, all four co-hosts coming to you from the state of Pennsylvania. We are back to talk sports analytics and a little bit of COVID-19 analytics. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, faculty all at the Wharton School. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Groundhog Day. It's going just as well and unique as the last 40 days, or <laughs> at least that now at this point, 60 days. Well, it feels a little different to me. I, I, I left Pennsylvania nine weeks ago, got back yesterday, and the season's changed at the very least. Yeah. It's different. It may be one of those uh, frog things where it just changed so gradually for y'all you didn't notice it, but it's pretty dramatically different now than it was nine weeks ago. Significantly greener. Guys. The, we- the weather certainly has uh, recently in Philadelphia facilitated more like actually going out. I've seen a lot of people of varying degrees of social distancing outdoors over right. the last like week I- or so. I-, I wandered over to our park and uh, tennis was being played, uh, soccer in the parks. It's good. It's Unbelievable good. amounts of people. There, no one's, I don't think, any doing anything what you wouldn't, wouldn't expect. If you took a photograph, on the other hand, from the wrong angle, it might look like everybody's on yeah, top of Yeah, there's a neat Twitter account that's, that's kind of hitting that. These same pictures from different perspectives. You can really scrunch people together or spread mm-hmm. them apart. But this outdoor idea, Adi, kind of takes us to one of the things that I know caught, one of, caught your eye. In, in the yeah. world of coronavirus, what has caught your eye? I saw that you posted this article on outdoor transmission. Yeah, it, it's something that was interesting. It actually was sent to me by uh, my friend Alan, who uh, graduated from our stat department um, in, with a PhD in statistics, and he's been writing on his blog about statistics. And he, he found himself caught up in, a, in what many of us have been caught up in, if you dare to venture into social media and argue about masks. And the reason why the mask argument can be very, very, very awful, if you will, is that people feel that they'll yell at people on the street if they don't think you're behaving as they think you should. So Alan did a considerable amount of research and he, he actually sent me this article. Turns out that China, there's lots and lots of very, very good um, tracking that they've done in China to investigate where breakouts have occurred and what's happened. And they were able to source almost every infection, I think several thousand or so infections, and they found only one was communicated outside. And in that case, it was actually an extensive face-to-face conversation. So put that out there as a data point, which suggests, if I were to interpret it right, that outdoor transmission is highly unlikely, um, to say the least, and that it, particularly if you are wearing a mask and staying at a distance, it's uh, extremely unlikely, and um, that you really would have to have a face-to-face conversation with someone outdoors. If you Adi, what's the, how does that go to stadiums? Like, obviously, we're interested in sporting events, and we're going to see a lot of live <laughs> events without crowds going forward. And I know there's, we've, we've cited this no outdoor spread before, but people did point to an Italian soccer game as being a big super spreader event. And obviously there's a lot of concerns about crowds. Is it because there's people in closer proximity and yelling? Is that why it's it's different? And I think it's also would be the repeated exposure of a person with COVID sitting right, standing or sitting right next to you for an extended period of time. I think another result kind of from that same study is that I think 80% of the cases were uh, outbreaks in kind of in home environments, yeah. which does suggest to me it's not just kind of compact spaces. It's probably like repeated exposure. Like if a family member has COVID, you're, you're, it's kind of like, you know, it's like the integral of your time exposed to that person. That's the real kind of determinant, yeah. I also which, think- which means something like being like, you know, like an outdoor thing where people are just in a park and you're just kind of walking through versus a stadium where you're standing okay. next to the same person for a few, you know, a couple hours. So I'll jump in and, 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 and just clarify that I think um, there are a couple factors. First of all, as, as uh, Kate, you pointed out, shouting and singing produces an enormous amount of, of material, if you will, liquid-esque right. material, which is the worst kind. Also, if you're very close together, um, that's where things can get problematic. As, as Shane said, you're, you're near each other. Stadiums, I don't think the outdoor part of the stadiums are the problem, particularly if it's not particularly dense. I mean, if you go to a Marlins game, only 800 people come anyway. Um, and, but they, what they do is they shove you all in right around home plate. So it's, it's, and they close all the other sections. 
they wouldn't do that, right? So if they were going to allow 2,000 people into a stadium that, that seated 60,000, the right way to do that is to spread everyone out around all the sections so that you are outdoors and you really aren't near each other. So I do think the base, baseball could handle um, outdoor crowds of some size and for some yeah. sports teams, not a problem. Um, and, and it'd be completely safe. But I do think that part of the issue is a trade-off. You have to figure out what we know about about transmission. And it does seem that... A lot of the things that we thought were true early on, I don't really think are, are necessarily supported by the data that we've learned since then. I will throw out one other observation. A lot of what we know about tr closed transmission comes from a, a, a church choir in Washington where apparently like 90 members of the choir were all together and about 50 of them um, contracted COVID from one person through a two and a half hour extended choir practice. Yeah. Um, and that kind of freaked people out because that was indoors and that was a lot of singing and, and an enormous amount of face-to-face -face contact. Adi, you alluded to other uh, understandings that have been kind of overturned by continued research. I believe one of them is about surface contamination versus vapor or, or aerosol. Yeah. So, so what, what do we believe now about surfaces? Well, see, what we believed and what we knew in the beginning was that surfaces have the virus on it and they live. For at least they, they can be measured on the, for some time depending on the surface, but people didn't realize until people were actually exposed to it what's actually happened. Um, so there's an Israeli study that just came out, I just saw it um, in the newspaper. I couldn't actually read the study, it may not have to be written yet, where, bi where biologists essentially scraped devices touched and held by people who have COVID-19 they were able to find the virus as everyone else has found, but then they tried to replicate it to see if it was alive, if it was actually gonna do anything. And they found it to be completely dead. So the viruses on surfaces aren't transmitting. They're, they're there, but they aren't, they aren't really there. Now, does that mean you can't? Well, everything is always possibility versus probability. We've been dwelling so deeply in the land of possibility that are starting to convert those possibilities into probabilities. So I just want to give an alternative possibility to what Adi just said. And again, um, I haven't seen as much data as he had, but here's another possibility. Let's imagine you measure people that go outside, okay? Well, who tends to go outside? Well, it's people that are feeling okay. If you were bedridden, you wouldn't go outside. So what might be, what we may be observing, and this relates to what uh, Shane said earlier, I believe from the beginning there's a dose-response relationship. Distance can affect that relationship. Length of time can affect the dose response, but also so can the amount of antibodies or the amount of virus you have in you. I'll give you an example. I have two friends in New York who both got tested positive. They did a serum antibody test. One of the people had eight times as much virus in them as the other, according to this test. One of them had much more severe symptoms than the other. So before we say it's okay to go outside, Let's make sure that what we're saying is, for people that feel well enough to go outside, they may have a lower level of the virus, which means that even if they were to come into contact with somebody for a long enough period of time, they may actually give a lower dosage to that person. Indeed, I think just to follow up, one of the textbook examples are the nurses, the frontline doctors exactly. and ER people who have been the most surprising um, instances. So we know a lot about the age curve and, the, and, the, and how that works with comorbidities and the most counter examples that we've emerged have been for the, for the healthcare workers and EMTs and people who are, have been exposed to very high viral loads. And that, that is absolutely a factor. I mean, I remember early on, uh, one of our former colleagues, uh, Meredith Professor Dean Foster, I asked him whether he's out there biking. And he said to me something, he's, this is early, I'm not sure he continued it. And, and are you going in groups? And he said, well, yes, because the basic idea is that anybody who's well enough to go on our bike ride better be pretty darn healthy to manage that was, it. That's, that's exactly my point. <laughs> right. I, be clear, uh, well, I think your point, I just want to make sure people don't listen to our show and think, it's okay if a sick person is next to me because yeah. it's outside. No, no. And, and I mean, different. and the other thing to keep in mind too, is that like, it does seem like this, there's also a lot of data that suggests for a large number of people, they are carriers, but completely asymptomatic. Uh -huh. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, I mean, it's true, that, it's true that there's a correlation between being, you're a pro, you know, you change your probabilities given if you're feeling, if you're feeling poorly, you're probably unlikely to go out and that's, a good thing but given that you're feeling well you're not necessarily Shane, not infecting do we know? other people have we seen have you guys seen data 
that relates, I'll call it the viral load someone has and the degree of asymptomaticness or asymptomaticity. So in other words, maybe there isn't, so maybe there isn't a relation. Maybe the people that are positive but are asymptomatic have the very low loads and that we, we just don't know. Yeah, we don't, it's true. We don't know. We, you know, we're um, asymptomatic, you know, we're judging mostly asymptomatic. All the data I've seen is judging asymptomatic by how you actually kind of feel as opposed to an actual viral load. That would be really good to look at. Let me give you a couple that caught my eye over the last week, guys. One is that um, there, some folks are training, they're trying to train dogs to sniff COVID-19. So, you know, dogs have been trained to smell other diseases and among other things. But the, and this happens to be a UPenn thing, a, a vet school at UPenn, which is a strong vet school. But they're trying to train up some dogs and test them to see if they can add to our testing basket. I thought that was fun. Um, one I just saw this afternoon, haven't dug into enough detail yet, but it's the classic kind of direction you'd expect the economist to go. Rainfall as an instrument for social distancing. So we're all interested in the impact of social distancing on COVID cases or mortality related to COVID, whatever your dependent measure might be. But we're concerned when you look at social distancing policy because states are or even um, localities that impose social distancing, they vary, they're not all the same. And so some are better educated, some are wealthier, some are different demographics. And so the policies might be related to those and that can confound what happens downstream. So what these guys did was look at rainfall within a state, especially rainfall that happened in the two or three days before some kind of social distancing policy hit. So in county, and they adjust for you know, overall rainfall. They do this within state to kind of control for some other things. But their observation is that if you got rain in a county two or three days before social distancing legislation went into effect, regulations went into effect, the spread was dampened. And they saw this beginning, you know, like about a week out and extended. Because people were maybe social distancing a few days before even they were being told to. That's the idea, that the weather imposes social distancing exogenously. So now they've got this exogenous instrument, which is what they're always looking for. So it's just, it's another piece of evidence in support of the impact of social distancing, because in this case, we can say it's pretty unrelated to any of these other factors that might confound it. Yeah, it's just, you know, and and I think that that, that's right. I think there certainly is evidence from a lot of different directions about like kind of like some type of social distancing has been effective in kind of lowering kind of the transmissibility of COVID. It just, you know, I mean, you know, some of these studies are kind of suggesting we have to, it's very nuanced what type of social distancing behaviors really are effective or not. You know, like, like it it could be that something like, you know, like we, we had like, like this kind of uniform six feet, regardless of whether you're in an enclosed space versus an outdoor park. Right. You know, et cetera. Like, you know, I, I think our, our social distancing policies are not particularly nuanced to the actual kind of which one, which of the kind of, you know, 18 things we're doing is actually being the most effective at, at, at uh, you know, dampening transmissibility. Well, just building on Shane's point, that's why, you know, for someone that, uh, you know, every once in a while likes to go to the uh, places where they have games of chance, let's call them casinos. Um, and you just saw, you see the opening plans this is the strangest thing to me. Um, forget whether it would be enjoyable or not, or not to be in a place where everyone's wearing masks or anything else like that. But you go back to Adi's also original point. You may well be exposed to a person for a long period of time. It's the same person sitting next to you. Um, you may well be exposed to whether it's a dealer or whoever it is. I understand they're going to have some sort of shield up in between, but you may be exposed to that person. Most of these people tend to be sedentary, so you're sitting. Um, there tends to be a lot of excitement that tends to go along with this. So to me, while I agree with Adi that there's a lot we don't know, it would seem to me you're indoors, you don't have great circulation, you seem to be exposed to a person for a long period of time, this does not seem to me to be, if I was going to rank order places to open quickly versus slowly, this does not seem to me to be an early versus one. I'd rather know more before I did it. It's my opinion. You forgot one very important additional factor against them, Eric. It's also how the spread started in the movie Contagion. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. But Eric, let me ask you a question. Would, would, would you fly right now? Well, for example, I personally probably would not fly right now, um, but it's for a different reason. 
the part, the thing that I still want to, and not just flying, it also has to do with us going back into work. Um, do you do it? What do we know about COVID? Maybe it's Adi's answer about it being on surfaces, but do we know about its sharing via a common HVAC or circulation system? So even if I say to myself, well, 90% of the time I'm in my office by myself, well, we do share an HVAC system in our building. We're all, we all have offices in the same building. Can I get it that way? I'm sitting in my office with possibly a 10-hour exposure on a given day. I understand maybe it's low particulates. Maybe it's a low amount, but it is for a long period. of. It's an integral. It's a long integral. So I don't know. I, no, until we understand that, I wouldn't feel good about being on a plane necessarily or being in my office. You could turn off your AC in July in, in, in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the school has policies. They'll turn it off for us if it gets yeah. warm enough to save money. So we don't have to worry about that. You're right. I'm going to throw in one thing that is very important because all these act- activities, all these distancings and methodologies that we would do, methodologies, efforts that we would do to lower the probabilities really only work if the levels of the virus in the community are low enough, because that's the base rate probability that you've got to start with. And it, the whole point of, you know, really, I mean, this is really the policy question that's emerging. When we, when we had the first gr- periods of rapid growth, New York and big cities, et cetera, there was so much virus already and it just exploded. Now that it's come down, the question is, what level does it have to be that now that you add in these extra measures, the whole purpose of it is to, is to lower the reproducibility rate so that if someone does manage to transmit it, it won't rapidly grow. Remember, the linear is a good approximation to an exponential in the very beginning. And then you can, you can catch it and then impose a, a quarantine on the people that have it, and then it can go back and can stay at a low level. I don't think we're anticipating getting rid of it from the, from the community. The, the idea is to keep it low. So I agree with you. Casinos has got to be the last place I'm going to enter. And, and, um, but I, I'm not so concerned. I'm personally, unless the HVAC thing, which I don't think is a likelihood, I'm not so concerned about going to work when the community levels in our region are low enough and we, and when we're, and we stay away from each other in crowds, so no groups of any size. I would be less concerned about going on what, to work on at what those basis, instances. By the way, you, last week you talked about all your concerns with the data. On what yeah. basis? Oh, I don't know how it is. I mean, I, I mean, I'm saying, on what basis are you making the statement that the viral level is low in the Philadelphia area? It's actually designated as one of the hot spots in the country. But on what basis? On what data are you making that statement? Oh, I was. That was a conditional statement. Oh, when the virus gets low, and how will we know that? Okay, that's a good question. I'm going to segue and take with that because that's the tough one when we know that. And this is the very hard thing because the data is terrible. And I've been mentioning this almost since the very beginning. And Nate Silver actually has been running with this on his Twitter feed, talking about the way the data gets aggregated is very bad. And we have a hard time tracking on a, on an, on a fine-grained frequency level of two weeks because of the aggregation. So that's a problem in and of itself. The bigger problem is the way that we've tested, that the, the accessibility to testing and the amount of testing has changed. So I'm gonna, I spent some time, the Philly data is great. It, they go back and they update it. And so I actually looked at a couple of key numbers. The positive rate, which we've been talking about since the very beginning. We, I also looked at the hospitalization rate. That's a, a very interesting, like how fast are people going to the hospital? And then of course you can look at the death rate. So what you're seeing is that while positive test results have not gone down as fast as you would like. They have gone down in Philadelphia. The fraction of hospitalizations among positives, the fractions of positive tests among all tests, those have all gone down enormously. So what you're seeing today are about the same number of tests, positive tests that we used to see in mid-April or early April. But the fraction of them that are bad cases is way, way down, which means is we've really uncovered much deeper into the, to the positive case pool that used to just be ignored. So the right way to look at the data was back in April, it was five times worse than we saw, maybe 10 times worse. And then right now we're getting a much more accurate picture of the community spread. So when you look at it that way, you see a much larger peak and a much, much, much rapid, more rapid descent. And so I think we'll see in the next month where we really are while, because there's really no anticipated changes going forward. I want to add one other observation, a longitudinal observation, at least it's a, it's a forecast in the way the medical folks talk about it, that the, the, the treatments will continue to get better and the way we'll really navigate this because we're likely to be a long time before we get to a vaccine will be better treatments. It argues for 
you want to get, if you get this thing, you want to get it as long from now as possible. You want the medical um, community to have advanced the way they diagnose, treat as much as possible before you get it. And so <laughs> if, if that's true, and it almost certainly has to be true, you should see the, the case fatality rate drop over time for a different reason. Audi's just named one reason. We just didn't observe a lot of cases early on, but this is a different thing. This is conditional on the same, you know, uh, the same demographic getting it. The consequences will be less bad. The, the thing that also caught my eye, Katie, relates to that is, you know, every day now, like you'll turn on, whether it's MSNBC, wherever it is, you'll turn on, you'll see this particular company now says that they've, they're moving on to phase two. And, and, you, and you look at the data and said, well, we ran this, we ran our first phase on eight people. And I'm thinking to myself, what? A phase? <laughs> that many That's... people, huh? And so you'll see their stock price go up tremendously. Yeah, you'll right. see the government ready to give them $100 million to just start producing hundreds of millions of loads. And it was eight people. And I think there's still this um, lack of understanding of, I'll call it just basic statistical uncertainty in small samples. Are you talking about the, the stock market, which you jumped today because of the result produced by Moderna, which said that the eight people or some small number of people, it was eight. Who, eight people. Who, who were given the virus? Um, well, there's, but it's not, you know, here's where, where eight can be good, right? Um, they're basically looking for a bad reaction. That's one of the key things. You know, if they're going to give a virus to people, they want to make sure that they don't, they don't just keel over, right? So, none of, none yeah. of them have turned into zombies. Yeah, yeah none of them are zombies. Yeah, right. yeah. So that's actually a good result. Before you but continue, all, if it's if it's um, let's imagine there's a five um, percent um, bad reaction rate. We can both do a little bit of math about how many people out of eight you might expect to see. When you give that to three hundred million people, are you okay with a five percent bad reaction rate? Well, that's the, I mean, this is probably not, and they're going to find that as they as they amp up. But that's not the good part. The good news was not that they eight survived. That's you'd expect it to be hundred percent. The good news is all eight had um, antibodies were generated by the by the the vaccine and both types of antibodies, so pre pre preventative and the ones that keep the infection and ones that kill it if it gets infected. And that's I mean, so now let's do it. Let's do a confidence interval. So let's say we need a virus to be successful has to be 50 percent. Otherwise, you can't do it now that you got eight out of eight. I mean, they're not necessarily independent, blah, 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 blah. But that's not so bad. I mean, you can definitely rule out it's not working, right? So if it didn't work at all, we'd get zero. And eight is going to make you is totally inconsistent with the rate of zero. It's also very inconsistent with the rate of 10%. So we can probably rule out, you know, some really bad results already. So, you know, sometimes a sample of eight can tell you things, right? So the only, I, I, I like the thinking, and obviously <laughs> I was thinking the same, but let me tell you some concerns I have. It's not even about the investing part. Forget that this isn't a finance show. I have concerns that let's imagine that we even have a vaccine that might have, whether it's 60%, 70%, whatever level of effectiveness you want, that it actually leads to behaviors that have larger effect sizes than actually the success rate of the vaccine itself. And so while you're right, for the people that the vaccine works, those people will be better off, but the people for which the vaccine doesn't work, and by the way, this is your classic average treatment effect versus heterogeneous treatment effect. We better hope, by the way, that this vaccine doesn't have heterogeneous effects and doesn't not work for certain subpopulations versus another, or this is, I don't want to get into the philosophical issues, but there's the statistical issues. We better understand this heterogeneously and an average effect size or an average rate of working. I'm not as interested in if I were a policymaker, I'd want to know how it works heterogeneously. How, how often is that heterogeneity an issue in vaccines? That's just not something I'm familiar with. And you don't hear it talked about. Is that one of the reasons they want large samples and, and big populations in the test are? So I, I, is it, how common is it that there would be heterogene, heterogeneous responses? There is heterogeneity in age. Uh, as we age, our immune systems get worse. And so generating a strong immune response in, in, in older people, and I think I might be in the older group, though. <laughs> uh, not quite, but the border is like in, in some place in the 50s is where they, where they decide that, that point. Um, and they did not recruit people in their 50s. So people who had these strong antibody responses are the really super strong young people who could tolerate whatever crap gets thrown at them. And they're the people that are on the front lines doing the testing. 
they're right. going to eventually need to roll it out and make sure that people of different ages and, and probably other backgrounds as well, although there isn't much um, data and I don't really know how to speak on that. But again, you know, I remember when I first started teaching statistics, one of the great examples we use is the efficacy of uh, the, the polio vaccine and how the, some of the early trials missed it because they didn't do a, a good experiment. They did observational studies or, or bad um, historical controls. But even a vaccine, which we know worked and basically got rid of polio in, in society, didn't, didn't work on everyone. The, the actual effective base was only about some, some fraction. It wasn't even small. We rely on herd immunity to get this working. That's essentially how it works. Mm-hmm. All right, fellas, why don't we step away from coronavirus specifically and after the break, we'll come back and talk about sports. Of course, that will keep the coronavirus conversation, but we'll take a little bit more sports centric. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. Kate Massey hosting with the whole crew, all of my Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We are all coming to you from the great state of Pennsylvania now. We have just spent a half hour talking through some of the latest on. Coronavirus, we think it's important to kind of set the context, of course, for our lives, but also any sports we talk about. It's also um, quite the lab for statistical and statistical reasoning and our making sense of numbers that get kicked around. In this half hour, more directly into sports, we have increasingly, every week that goes by, guys, we have more sports of various forms taking place. What was your favorite post-pandemic, current in-pandemic sport this week? Well, I actually, I, I mean, and it's probably the only time I'm going to call it my favorite sport, but I checked out some Bundesliga soccer action yes. this last weekend. And it was, it was, it was super cool to obviously kind of see, have turn on the TV on like a Saturday morning and, and, and have sports on again. Um, and I chatted with a few friends while I was watching it and it was Dortmund versus some other team that Dortmund destroyed. And Dortmund's, I guess, the That's... second best team in the Bundesliga this year. So Wasn't that some other team, their big, Dortmund's big rival? Isn't that like, they must be geographically proximal or something. Someone give us a rundown of the Bundesliga because there are some big teams. Bayern Munich, Munich, right? Yeah, I mean, Bayern Munich, I guess they're like the Yankees of the Bundesliga. They're almost always the, the dominant team and they continue, you know, today. I guess this season's gone shock so far in, in that particular respect. Um, but yeah, so Dortmund Frankfurt, I think, is kind of a, a pretty good team. Yeah, um, yeah. Presumably they provide four teams to the Champions League. All the big leagues provide yeah. four, right? So I think the top four will flow into the Champions League. So one reason you might pay attention to the close of the season. I think they only went into this last part of the season with nine games left. And so there'll just be a, few, a couple months worth, not even two months worth of, uh, of games. All right, Shane, I'm curious, you know, we're going to have to get accustomed to watching sports without live crowds. What yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it was, I mean, one thing that was actually kind of neat, and I mean, I think we've kind of uh, echoed this same sentiment in the various kind of other live sports we watch, but to be able to hear all the player, the communication between players is really interesting to me. And especially with soccer, because it's a very international, I mean, it was like, there's like three or four, I heard like three or four languages during this game, just kind of being yelled at each other and stuff like that. And so I think that aspect of it is really interesting. I mean, it's still, you know, it's going to take a while to kind of get used to it where it doesn't just feel weird to me. But yeah. I, to a certain extent, there's some kind of, I feel like there's almost kind of a, the novel, it's not just novelty. I actually think there's kind of a, almost a positive to being yeah. able to kind of have this like I'm kind wondering... of high resolution audio view of like what's actually going on on the field of play. Shane, I wonder if it will lead production crews to put more attention on that going forward. And there was this, there's this conversation, I saw some news last week that the NFL is talking about piping in fake crowd noise to their productions, presuming we have them in the vault. And I don't know how I feel about that. I want yeah. to be a real art to get the crowd right. I mean, I, I feel like crowd knows if you know it's fake has got to be kind of weird, right? I mean, I think it's fine if you're like covering up like a not so boisterous crowd where you, you, your minds are still expecting a crowd, but without a, anybody in the fans, it's just going to be a weird audio but, but track. You listen to laugh tracks on sitcoms for decades. And if you ever watch a sitcom without a laugh track, you'll appreciate that it actually makes a difference. Yeah. But I was hoping that they would just spend more time and technology on the real sounds of the game. I mean, why not figure out ways to really get in the middle of it and give us that, give us the sideline, give us the players, give us the hits or whatever. It's a, there is a noise, there is noise going on. 
I'm particularly interested in, in pushing that idea of yours, Cade, because I think piping in fake, fake sounds is, we'll, read, we'll see through it, we'll hear through it, but the audio component of any entertainment endeavor is generally undervalued. I, I challenge you going forward, listen to the soundtrack of your favorite movie, whatever it is, and really think about what that soundtrack is doing to your emotions. And oh, it's God. extremely important. And I think that audio is important to sports. And I think this is an opportunity to shift attention rather than put something in fake, shift attention to something maybe equally interesting. I'd love to hear the, the, somebody who speaks a couple of different languages who knows what's, to like translate for us, tell us what's going on, you know? And so that would be so interesting for people to say what they're saying and, and make that one of the many things you could talk about from the announcing crew and let us think about and hear different, different uh, directions. So, and, and I mean, I'll just point out too, that I, I, I feel like sport, uh, football was already kind of going in this direction even prior to COVID, I mean, the XFL, RIP, I mean, you know, they're a very short-lived experiment. <laughs> Too bad. Um, they, they have, I, I remember watching the game and it was kind of, it took a little bit of getting used to, but they had like something like five players on each side mic'd up mm-hmm. during the action. Do we have any, do we have any? And, and coach, you could actually hear the coaches to say, you, they, they would pipe it, you know, the coach feed and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think they're already looking, going towards sort of more of a mic'd up where we'd be able to actually hear the players interact. And now we've taken the crowds out of it. So we've found a technological solution to that temporarily. Do we have any, do we have any expectation? You know, there's always this discussion, whether it's in football or even soccer and team sports about who the crowd noise affects more, the offense or the defense. And so let's imagine you went with the theory. Would there be any way? Let's imagine the NFL plays an entire season. I understand you'd rather have them randomly assign games with noise and not noise and compare. But since we don't have that, do you think we'll be able to make some assessment like the offense is more affected than the defense or something? Will we learn anything about the effects of crowd noise or is it just too much confound because um, we're not observing any of the counterfactual at all? I mean, maybe different. If, if there's crowd noise, maybe different teams will. There, maybe there'll be enough variation in crowd noise levels between teams that we'll have some enough information to to, to say something. Well, let me ask you a question. Know. Let's imagine we take or domes, like you know, domes versus outdoor, where it actually carries more. Well, let's let's imagine, for example, we took the 2020 data. Let's imagine up until they they allow fans in. Let's imagine we fit the Massey Peabody model to the actual outcomes. And let's imagine we were able to look at the home field advantage and compare it to historical home field advantages. My understanding from last year, Kate, is you guys actually look even at differential home field advantage. So it wasn't just a single number for each team. So maybe we'd have some more resolution there. Don't, do we think we could at least apply a statistical model and compare estimates across years? Well, that's, I think at that level, it's, a, it's, a, it's more tractable. Um, and there are interesting things that, that happen with home field advantage. One, as we talked about on the show and Adi got into, it's gone down over time, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Um, to be honest with you, when you look at individual team differences, they seem to be fleeting and it's mostly confounded with just who's good. Um, so like Seattle was famous for having such, supposedly having a home field advantage back when they were strong. Turns out Seattle doesn't have much of a home field advantage now. And so Rufus and other sports betters have looked pretty hard for these differences and they bake them in there when they can, but there just aren't huge, mostly that's story and not reality. Let me uh, point our attention to potentially basketball. If it ever gets back, I think basketball has uh, a pretty hefty home field advantage and it's larger than football. And it's, uh, you know, with uh, a arena without fans, and if it if that gap sizably disappears, it's about eight percent, I think, about seven eight percent. That would be maybe measurable. Um, and it's also and it's and, and we've in the season that is in the midst of right now. I think we're seeing some of the all time largest home and away differentials we've ever seen, particularly with the seventy sixers. Yeah. Um, and they weren't the only team. There was just massive, massive um, differences between home and away in the current season and, and without crowds, I don't think the crowds are the, the responsible player. I mean, that's basically my view is that it, it largely has to do with in basketball with just not traveling and being home and, and in your own environment. Well, you know, the classic result or really the most rigorous empirical result for a long time was Moskowitz and Wertheim in scorecasting and they put it on referees. 
Now that may be because of fans, though. You don't. Yeah. Well, well no, I think that is, I, I think that is kind of the, the to the extent that that's a real effect. The causal mechanism is the fans are influencing uh, yeah. the, the interesting the, the, the uh, yeah. It was certainly recognizable in sports in, in baseball, soccer. I, I don't know if it was a factor in basketball so much, but so there was another sporting event of, of of some kind this weekend without fans, and this is the sport that we always anticipated seeing first. It was kind of obvious to us that golf should be able to get out there quicker. And so there was this little matchup benefit charity matchup that, uh, that went down and I'm sure I don't need to do homework to know that Eric watched this thing. Eric, what was it like? Yeah, I did watch the entire (laughs) event. It was, it was a four person match. It was two on two, similar to next week's match, although we'll get to that in a second. On one side was Rory McIlroy, who's currently the number one player in the world and Dustin Johnson, who's the number five player in the world. They were on one team. And the other team was uh, Ricky Fowler um, and a rookie guy who's coming up recently. His name is Matthew Wolf. So it was the two of them, and the, they played. Um, Who picked those teams? That doesn't seem like a fair pairing at all. Well, apparently they're both, uh, I think, uh, they're both Cowboys, the second two, Oklahoma State. So they both went to Oklahoma State. That's why they had them together. But you're right. It wouldn't seem like it was fair, although I will say um, – McElroy and Johnson won the event. Um, it was a skins game event. So it was, um, they each played their own ball and whichever team won the hole. Um, they were, Fowler and Wolf were leading up until the last hole, which was worth a million, 1.1 million in uh, either way. Um, Ricky Fowler got really hot, hit seven birdies. I mean, he was just absolutely on fire, was winning basically every hole on his own. Um, it was an interesting event. I liked real golf. Um, I could tell that they weren't um, in their prime uh, playing shape, if you would like. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, they hit some really bad shots. I mean, <laughs> really bad. Outstanding. Um, which was great. It was great. That's, that's, that's satisfying. <laughs> I can see some of that. Yeah, it, they were hitting bad shots, but um, it was exciting. Um, they carried their own golf clubs, so there were no caddies, oh, and they that's carried cool. their own clubs. Um, which was interesting to see. Um, There were no fans, as mentioned. There were very few rules officials. Um, Matter of fact, um, there were very few cameras, so it was bad camera angles um, (laughs) and not a lot of excitement, but it was live golf. So it was okay. It was fun to watch. I just always want to see these professional athletes in normal context because we lose perspective by only seeing them around other professional athletes. This is a little bit of a variation on that. Yeah, if you spend a little time with with professional athletes as a team, I've been in, in the the uh, the dugout or the um, it, it, uh, in spring training. The baseball players who are not known to be gigantic, they are really tall as a group, really really big people as a group. And I imagine football players make the baseball players look much smaller. So that's interesting. But I'm curious about the golf when you're playing an amateur and a professional. Do they collaborate? Is there a strategy that we could offer them? They must have some sort of alternating system that they have to go with. But if, uh, if say, Brady's is, uh, is, is, is on the tee, right, what does he do? What, is, what do you tell him if you're following him? Uh, in other words, you're saying an alternate shot? I just want to be clear. Well, you know, what, what are the rules? I mean, how do, are they set well, up? So there's a, there's a, it's a mixed format. Uh, it's a mixed format. So they have to they have to take turns. Um, the the, the only they're only the alternate shot and best ball are the only ones where you could really kind of call them as collaborating, I guess, right? Correct. You know, because because like they're, one of the formats is just they play their own ball. You know, other right, than right, cheering course, each right. other on, there's no real opportunity for strategy there. I think oh, you're asking. Oh, sorry, you're asking an interesting question, which is where is the greatest differential between yep. a pro and an amateur? Um, shockingly. If mm-hmm. I had to make a prediction, I will look and I will report this next week on our show. It's actually near the green. I will predict it's from the bunker. I will predict it's chipping and pitching the ball. And I'll predict it's putting the ball. Most people say it's the driving. Nope. I think these guys can all blast it over 300. Matter of fact, you could make an argument that Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson, uh, Tom Brady and uh, uh, Peyton Manning may actually hit more fairways than these pros. And so to me, I would have, if I could have a choice, I would have my pro hit everything near the green. That's, that, that, that's, I would that say. That is interesting. Nice. So it's interesting. There's it's one other, there's one other faux sporting event that we've been paying attention to, and that is the last dance. It closed the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls final season, final championship season, closed their 10 part series closed this past Sunday. Any parting thoughts on that 10 hour experience? Well, 
from, I'll just say one thing from an emotional point of view, non-statistical, and then I'll get to the statistical point. Um, I actually didn't know the story of Steve Kerr's father. Um, I actually did not know that he was a university president and been killed, had been shot um, and killed. Um, I didn't know that he kind of shared that awful experience with Michael Jordan, which was the point of it. Both of their fathers were murdered. Um, one, of course, in Lebanon, one here in the United States. But I, I didn't know that just from a personal level. Um, from a statistical and level, socialism. yeah, from a statistical level, the part that also intrigued me was game six of the NBA finals in 1998 when they were playing the Utah Jazz. And that the flu game? N no, that's oh. 97. 97 was the flu game. This was the game where the Jazz were up by three with 35 seconds left. Um, the the uh, Bulls get the ball. First of all, they let Michael Jordan go in one-on-one -on -one for a layup against uh, Byron Russell. So first I'm thinking, why didn't you double-team Michael Jordan? The second thing is, this is the game where Carl Malone gets stripped from behind near the end of the game by Michael Jordan. And then Michael Jordan gets the ball, and they don't call timeout. And this is the one where Michael Jordan hits the shot over Byron Russell, where he, the left-hand push on his behind where he shoots that shot. But the reason I thought it was interesting from a statistical perspective is everyone makes it seem like, okay, so the only way the Bulls were going to win this game was a layup, a steal, a jump shot, and no score. I'm like, no, there's a lot of ways the Bulls could have won this game. For example, someone could have gotten a three. The game would have been tied. Or they could have made a shot. There was a free throw missed and something else. So people tend to look at what happened and say, wow, there's, there's five different things that had to happen. And that's why it's such a rare thing. Yeah, but there's, there could be 50 different paths that could lead to the Bulls winning this game. you got to sum all of those probabilities. You can't just take the one that you observed and say, that's so rare, the Bulls got lucky. It doesn't work that way. There's, well, there's different ways they could have won the game. And, but there's a, a different colloquialism. Everything had to go right. Do you actually kind of like, no. so do you actually think that everything like w w among the myriad of possibilities, were there ones even where like some of the steps were not actually, yeah. you so know, advantageous, positive for the bulls? Yeah. So to me, the most, well, no, they were all positive for the bulls. The most critical one was the loss of possession by the steel where Carl Malone catches the ball is holding it like a loaf of bread. And Michael Jordan comes around the backside and just swipes it and steals it where you didn't get a shot attempt. Carl Malone was a dominant player. He was league MVP that year. Um, so for like, let's say he's got a 40%, 50% chance of scoring. Well, they didn't even get a shot attempt and it took less time. So that was the critical step. But even if he had scored there, remember, they're only down three with, let's say, 15, 20 seconds left. I don't think the win probability, I mean, Adi, you study this. How much is the win probability? If the Jazz were down three with 15 or 20 seconds left, it's not like the Bulls were in 98% to win that game. So, Adi, you're muted there, buddy. What to oh, yes, look at that. Yeah, I don't know what the probability is. It's not, it's not 98. It's almost never that, I mean, it, when a game is close. So that, that was what caught my eye, was just the people made it seem like it was like a one-in-a-million thing that the Bulls won that game, and it just wasn't. <laughs> you're, really, you're really a downer. This is one of the great moments in sports, one of the great all-time final shots in sports, and um, to take the fun out of that, I, wow. So with, but, a few, but, with a few seconds left, by the way. There's a general, I love this general point that we tend to say, look at all the things that had to happen for this to go wrong or for this to go right. And we don't consider the universe of possibilities. However, stay with me for a second. And what, when you think of important clutch steals, what's another one that you think about? And I, and I, and they're so rare. It's hard not to give. But fumble. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, uh, I say, say within sport. I think about Dennis Johnson stealing that inbounds pass. And feeding it to Bird, I think. No, it was the other way yeah. around. Larry Bird stole the inbounds pass and passed it to DJ, who, who scored. Just so everybody knows, this is roughly, I'll say 1988. This is the, uh, the, the Celtics are, the Pistons have the ball up one with four seconds left to eliminate the Celtics. And Larry Bird, the, the guy's just like routinely inbounding the ball and Bird comes out of nowhere. 
steals the ball, throws a ridiculous pass to DJ, Dennis Johnson, who's cutting to the basket, who, again, has to make a very difficult shot. That was one of the great steals. And, of course, you know, the most famous one, if you're a – I'm not a Celtic fan, but if you were, how many times have you heard Johnny Moe screaming, Havlicek steals the ball, Havlicek steals the ball? That's the one that, like, you know, living there 20 years later or whatever, that you, you, you could not go more than a few days without seeing that highlight on a TV in Boston. My question is, are we – because you want to – I want to say the narrative is great players step up at these key moments. And, and Jordan made that steal against Malone. Jordan created that moment. Bird, watching – I remember watching it live, real time. Bird, out of nowhere, creates the second save. The game and turns the series. It's hard not to say these special players find ways to get it done. Is there something wrong about that? Are we focusing on this fact that this thing happened and now we're telling a story around what happened as opposed to all the things that occurred? Well, I mean, the only part of the narrative worth acknowledging is the tremendous selection bias. It mostly, it's mostly special players that are in the position to have these kind of special moments, right? That it's not like, you know, that kind of opportunity for a special moment is not distributed uniformly across all players. But other, other than that, no, I mean, I think it's, it's a fine encapsulation. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with the narrative that special players do do special things. Well, the narrative is excellent and what's what makes sports particularly enjoyable. And, and I don't want to, you know, belittle it, but let me just ask with a question. What is the frequency of an inbounds pass being stolen? What frequency do balls get stolen in situations like, you know, like the Michael Jordan steal? I think I, I don't know the, the former one. Maybe Eric has some estimate. How often do they get stolen? I mean, is it ridiculously unlikely? And then that this event just came true. I mean, or did it come out of the, out of the, the complacency of the inbound passer, not realizing since it happened so rarely, they just were just not paying attention. I, I mean, think that's, if you watch the, um, I agree. I, I was like, Kate, I was watching that game live. Obviously I, it was, it's hard to believe I was hating both teams as much as I was. I wanted them both huh. to lose, but obviously I would prefer the Celtics have lost. Um, I think it was both out of your pointing out. Right. I think the inbounds passer took it for granted that, you know, this is just an inbounds pass. And then, of after course, Larry, a made, it was after a made basket. It was just after a, a made basket. Just a routine course, thing. They weren't pressing. It was just, you know, what right, it was just they weren't pressing. And then, of course, Larry Bird probably assessing that yeah. they were just going to routinely inbound the ball. And that's why he was at a place he should not have been if he thought that the guy on the Pistons was thinking whatsoever. There's no reason Larry Bird would have been there none whatsoever well that what that does is is it does recognize bird's genius because he took a chance so if the inbound passer realized that bird was out of position he could have exploited it in which case in other words the expected value of bird's move was probably negative but he added an amazing amount of risk and that was a great move when it came in i think there's a similar point to be made i suspect about jordan's steal of malone because that happened on the baseline. Jordan, I don't think, should have been on the baseline defending Malone in the post or even around him. Actually, into Jordan's, and just to say, in this case, they've talked about it on the episode a little bit last night. Um, Jordan knew that play was going to happen. As a matter of fact, you know, Carmelo's your MVP. Who do you go to? Carmelo. Mm-hmm. He's being covered by Dennis Rodman. They knew that. Um, they knew that Malone likes being on a certain side of the basket. So Jordan said before the play happened, he went to Rodman and said, I'm going to come around the weak side as soon as the ball comes in. So Jordan knew this play was going to happen. And actually, you're right. He, there's no, he was nowhere near the man covering him. And back to Adi's point, if Malone had passed it to the man that Jordan was covering, it would have, which is Byron Russell, it would have been a wide open dunk. But he, you know, you're right, Adi. He had to insert risk. He had to yeah. insert structural risk. Which is genius, by the way. Genius. To realize that. Well, and just and desperation. I mean, yeah. what other <laughs> choice did he have? But yes. Yeah, opportunity is born out of, out of so, so maybe special players make special plays more because, you know, their desperation moves are a little bit more likely to succeed than other players. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of desperation moves, are we going to have a Major League Baseball season this year? I think so. Yeah, yeah, no, no. There's conversation about an 82-game season or 81-game season, half a season, essentially. There's a lot of discussion about the negotiation with the players union and players wanting a a full pro rata compensation. So I'm not following it closely enough to know, but it would, it would, from the outside, it would seem surprising if they would scuttle the whole season over 
this kind money. of negotiation. No, and I, I, I don't think that they will. Well, I, think, I think they'll put it. To, well, they'll, there'll be some kind. Of, there'll be federal intervention before they they scuttle the season. Let me ask you a series front. of questions. So, now, and this is mainly to Adi, but to anybody. Um, let's imagine a baseball player hits four hundred. Are we counting it? No. All right. If a baseball player hits. 35 home runs in the first half. Are we going to start talking about this person would have hit 70? No. Well, God, no. I mean, no. We've, we've, we've experienced shortened seasons before. I mean, there's been strike, strike shortened seasons. This is so not necessarily. Seasons, so no personal records can count. No, absolutely not. They can, they can get the record for the, the highest batting average in a shortened season. They can continue to <laughs> contribute to their cumulative totals. Yes, absolutely. Career to- totals. Yes. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't think any, I, yeah, I don't think it, any seasonal record will, uh, there'd be an asterisk at, at best. And, and I don't want to hear whining about players losing a season or two when some of the greats have lost multiple seasons to world wars, et cetera. So that's, that's my take. <laughs> Back in the day. Yep. Yeah. Went to school uphill both ways. <laughs> hey, look, Ted Williams would have had 750 home runs and 4,000 yeah. hits if he had played those five seasons. Yeah. Oh, Ted Williams, what's, Willie what's Mays. Yeah. What is the conversation about what the playoffs look like in this kind of short, strike shortened season? Because, man, my God, they have to play 162 games just to get some signal on which baseball team is best. What are you going to do with 82 games? Well, they, I mean, there has been discussion of expanding the playoffs format anyway. So I don't know if they, they could go ahead with that. Right. Try something new. Actually, yeah. uh, so Shane should be extraordinarily happy about this. He was worried. He was worried the evil Yankee Empire. Well, that, that, I mean, I think it's, a, it's if they it's only a, play twenty games, anybody can win it. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's true. No, I mean, and, and I mean, there is an argument to be made if if your team that was looking particularly good going into this season, like the Yankees were, um, you were presumably a little disadvantaged. You know, the, yeah. the variance kind of. Just the added variance of of, of smaller well, samples. Well, not just that, Shane. Can I ask a question? Do you see a possibility of a team, let's say it's 20 games left in the season, where you know it's not 80, Geff, why doesn't a team go to a three-man pitching rotation? I mean, yeah. you're not going to burn your guy out. It's only a certain number. Why not shorten the rotation? You don't have to worry about the length. Well, I mean, and, and I mean, things like rotation, I mean, because I think it's going to also involve expanded uh, um, roster rosters, right? So, I mean, there'll be all kinds of interesting things with that. And, but I, there'll also be dynamics. What if we have, like, you know, like, I mean, they're, they're going to avoid outbreaks by presumably testing players very, very often. But players will probably still get COVID. And, like, what, what, what happens then? You well, know? they're talking I mean, about ending a season if someone gets it. I, uh, I, and, but now there's a report that, no, they'll just be quarantined for a month or two, yeah. for a month or so. I'm actually, I mean, listen, I think testing, you have to be careful with testing, 30% of positive people who are actually positive test negative. So, <laughs> you know, it's a nice thing to have, but you still have to take, you know, the, the precautions. Oh yeah, no, that's right. I, I just, no. you know, I, I was more speaking to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what, whether, uh, I don't, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't see that point. So. How do the Astros feel about a shortened season? Is this a good thing? They want to get the pain of the abuse out of the way. And then maybe the next year people will forget about it and forgive. I mean, I feel like the Astros, the Astros were definitely doomed to a season of a lot of ridicule. I mean, I kind of feel like COVID has done them a little bit of a solid. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I think we're just going to mostly be focused on baseball being back. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds. And and there won't be booing in the stands (laughs) unless they pipe it in. All right, fellas. That's been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. We're mixing in a little bit of coronavirus analytics with our conversation because sports is mixing in a little bit of coronavirus with their sports but we will be back to do this again next week the whole crew coming to you virtually we hope you'll join us between now and then enjoy your sports